2: Zumo Play.
4: Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with DJ and philanthropist, Frank Ski. Ski is one of America's top radio DJs.
5: Hey, everybody, it's your boy, Frank Ski, and you heard it. Yep, I am back, DMV. Hey, listen, Frank
4: Ski. His career is back. started in Baltimore in 1988, and today, he holds down a morning show in Atlanta and an afternoon drive show in the nation's capital. Frank hasn't just played the hits on the radio. He was a street DJ even before he hit the airwaves. And over the years, he's created music that often put people on dance floors across the country. The Wobble, Doo Brown, and Whores in the House had people up. When the latter was sampled on Cardi B and Meg The Stallion's Wap, the song became one of 2020's biggest hits. Ski has become a force in the music industry and in the community through his philanthropic efforts, most notably the Frank Ski Kids Foundation, created to expose kids to their future through science, technology, athletics, and the arts. Hey, man, good to see you. Good to see you more, brother. Listen, you know, for as long as I've known you, I didn't know until I started doing research uh, uh, about you for this is that you're from, you're from originally born in, I should say Harlem,
5: Harlem, New York. Yeah.
4: I had no idea.
5: Yeah. Harlem, New York, family from Harlem. So that's cool.
4: Talk to me a little bit about your childhood. I know that, um, you know, as it went on, it, it, family broke up to a degree, had to live in a couple of places, but what do you, what do you remember most about it? Um,
5: you know, it's interesting. I had a, kind of like a um, traumatic childhood for some people, but I think it worked out perfectly the way it was supposed to work out. I was actually uh, living with my mom. My mom was uh, in a relationship with somebody else and they had kids and um, he had some issues and there was a tragic situation within my family. And eventually I got separated from my brothers and sisters. They went with, um, her her person that she was dealing with her husband at the time, they went with his family. And I subsequently for a very short period of time actually went into a foster care system mm-hmm. and eventually left that system and went down to South Florida to live with a father that I had never met. And right. at that time I was like four or five years old.
4: Let me ask you this, man, in that, um, I often appreciated all that you did with Franksky's kids. You've been very yeah. philanthropic through, through your life. Uh, the blessings that you've had economically, you've, you've shared those things. How much of what you went through as a kid has to do with you giving back? Do you think,
5: you know, it's interesting. I, um, as I got older, I always was gravitated to as an older person to give my time to young kids. And even when I had my son and when he was like four or five, I would be the guy that would take all the neighborhood kids, whether they were mine or not. And we would go to the movies. Um, I love like movies and taking kids to the fair. And I was doing this as a young adult, like every single weekend. It was never just me and my own kid. It was always me and nieces and nephews and other people's kids. Um, that I took out. And I think that all was because as a child, when I went to live with my father, I was a latchkey kid at a very young age and was kind of like by myself. So I learned to um, enjoy time by myself, but I never really wanted to do that. So I always wanted to make sure that kids got busy. And I kind of lived vicariously The childhood that I always wanted, I lived through the kids that I got a chance to help. But it wasn't until it wasn't until later um, when I went to college and thought I was going to be a lawyer that I met my life mentor. And from there and working in radio at the time, did I get interested in really making that give back a profession with the yeah. Franksky Kid
4: Foundation. Here's what's interesting to me. You know, I think about often, I remember talking to Jamie Foxx about his situation with his parents. He ended up being raised by his grandparents and how he couldn't understand that uh, a father who lived only a few blocks away in his mind wanted nothing to do with Jamie. And Jamie yeah. said to me, here I was, you know, this good kid, star athlete, and he didn't want me in his mind. This is yeah. what Jamie was thinking and later they mended fences and found ways to work through a relationship and all. How much did you harbor any of that if at all, Frank, this sense of hey, you know, did you personalize it? Is it is it me?
5: You know, the one good thing was that when I went to live with my father, that was actually <clears throat> a request from my mother. And um, as a child and even as a young adult, I really didn't understand the dynamics of what was going on back then um, but have grown to appreciate it.
2: Mm-hmm. When I
5: went to live with my father um, it was a completely different situation you know him being a single father, uh, him being Puerto Rican and having you know his mother come stay and she only spoke Spanish and what that dynamic was for me in Miami but the thing that I appreciated, was the fact that whenever it was requested, my father, who worked for the airlines at the time, always took me to New York to see my family. So I never had a disconnect once I went to live with my father, with my family. And even though my mother and I, we had issues through the years, we're actually like great friends now. Um, you know, I, I met one time with my my buddy, Kevin Lyles. And, and Kevin had some similar situations in his life, and he said, "You know, I had to finally put myself in their shoes to understand what they were going through, to be empathetic about what they were going through, and what they felt was the best to do, you know, at the yeah. time." Yeah, and sometimes it that,
4: takes growing up and yeah, understanding what up life up. is.
5: Yeah. So, so interesting enough is that um, my parents are are friends to this day. You know, um, they laugh. They. They both come to my house for Christmas. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a great situation. The only person I ever held any type of um, resentment towards and I had to get over was actually the aunt that took my sisters and brothers, but did not take me. But Mm -hmm. when I look back at the situation, I'm glad she did not take me because I had an opportunity to go live with my father and to see a whole different life. And I'm Mm -hmm. so glad that I went that route.
4: Here's the other interesting thing. I think we are, even as we grow to become adults, a lot of the makeup of where you grew up. So there's very much a Midwestern sensibility for me growing up in Detroit. My yeah. style is very much Detroit, that whole nine. Mm-hmm. You have an interesting mix of New York and Miami. Yeah. And I think it comes through now that I know yeah. in who you are. So I spent a lot
5: of time as a child in New York, so any any time I had more than a couple of days off, I was in New York, and I fell in love with that with that lifestyle. Even today, as an adult, when I hit the streets in New York, it just gives me a a, a different sense of you know what my life was being there. Um, but I enjoyed life in New York as as for lack of a better word, as a tourist. My mm-hmm. grandfather was was um, well known. He actually owned the strip. On 125th Street, where Harlem World is, where um, the Apollo Theater is at. And I got a chance to really um, see a different side of New York because he was well to do. He was the guy that would not leave the hood, but drove the big body Mercedes Benz and employed everybody. And I watched my family members line up at his office door during the holidays just to get an envelope full of Christmas money so they can do stuff for their family. So he, he went out supporting his entire family. So I, you know, I appreciated that side of, of my life. But at the same time, I also really loved uh, being in South Florida. My father was the guy that got up and said, it's 5:30, we're going fishing. And mm-hmm. with five dollars in his pocket, we figured out fishing and lunch. And that was my dad at the time. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I I loved and to this day, I take a lot of that characteristics. Of what I learned as a child in Miami and put it into my own kids.
4: Interesting. Um, the other thing I found out, you like I initially wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. You actually became a paralegal. You you went a oh, step yeah, further. I
5: was, I was I was deep into it. It, it you know um, it's funny how God puts you in positions, right? So when I finally, at the age of eighteen, um, graduated from high school, my father sat me down and gave me the old school black conversation. He told me, I have three choices. I can go to college, I can go to the military, or I can get a job and pay rent. And college um, was difficult for me because I never, growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood in South Florida, nobody ever put college into me. My Mm -hmm. father, nobody on my father's side ever went to college. So we didn't know how to apply or do anything. And I didn't know until it was almost late in the game. So I couldn't get into college in Miami right away. Um, I tried the military, but I had a sports accident. They didn't take me and I was already working, but I sure enough, didn't want to give that much money to my father. And my mother called me and my mother said, um, I hit the number. You remember the, you know, mm-hmm, the numbers mm-hmm. game back in the hood. She said, I hit the number. And I want you to go live with your aunt in Washington, DC. And I went to live with my aunt in DC. And after a short period of time was on my own. And I had another aunt who I'm very close with, like my best friend now. And she said, I'm going to get you a job this summer at the US Attorney's Office. And that became my introduction into the legal field. And I was the kid at the courthouse that spoke Spanish. So the chief judge would always call me into the courtroom to interpret for um, the population, the Hispanic population that was coming into DC at the time. Um, I eventually went into a law firm and at that law firm met many people and actually had a relationship with Clarence Thomas and some other well-known judges at the time. And I thought I was gonna be the super lawyer. I thought I was gonna be this lawyer, but the streets called me when I was a DJ paying my way through college as a DJ. And I got a call one day and a visit at the courthouse from this lawyer who actually ran the college radio station. And he said, I want you to do a job on this radio station. Well, that led to getting a call into Baltimore And but at the law firm that I was working at at the time, the lawyer that I was law clerking for and being his paralegal, he actually sat me down and he said, what is it that you love? And I said, well, you know, I I love a lot of things. He said, well, why are you working here at the law firm? I said, because this is going to be my job and my career. And he said, well, why do you DJ parties and you travel around and you're like this hot street DJ? And I said, because I love doing that. And he said, well, if you love doing that, that's what you mm-hmm. need to do. And he taught me. And man, if I had time, I would tell you he became the mentor that gave me all the tools to success. But what he really taught me was to follow my passion. Interesting enough, Ed, is that while I was a paralegal under him, I would go to depositions with him and I would watch him depose people, which is like an interview, right? Mm-hmm. And then I would have to go back to the office and summarize those depositions, and I learned body movements and mannerism and eye contact, and I learned tempo, and I learned you know that the you can feel the vibe and when to ask a question and when not, and how to ask it, and, and how to get around, and eventually getting to the answer that you want to get. And I think for a lot of reasons, one of the reasons why I do so well on the radio, especially with interviews, is because I learned from being a paralegal that was in the middle of depositions.
4: Wow. Let me ask, the love of music, was that something that was in the home all the time? Where'd you pick that up?
5: So my dad, interesting enough, I, I like to call my dad one of the hippies from back in the 70s. And he would always take me, even at a young age, like six, seven, eight years old, he would take me to concerts. So I saw the Rolling Stones and in Earth, Wind and Fire and everybody you can think of. Mm -hmm. And he was really in love with, you know, with the jazz side of it, with George Benson and Herbie Hancock and people like that. And I would go to the to these festivals and everything with him. So I always had this love of music, but it was traveling back and forth to New York where I had an aunt and an uncle who owned a very famous club called Harlem World. And Harlem World um, was the premier hip hop club in New York at the time. And hanging out in Harlem world, I fell in love with hip hop. So going back to Miami, I was like the only kid that knew how to do it. And I was doing shows at the roller skate ring to get in and eat free. And I was just reciting other people's raps on the mic. So I was reciting the Sugar Hill Gang or Secret Weapon Must Be the Music, you know, <laughs> and, and I sounded like the guy saying flashing lights, move into the beat. And and I would do that as a young, young guy in Miami. and. One thing just led to another, and, and that's
4: where God took me. Ski had been DJing clubs and events up and down the D.C. New York corridor before starting his radio career in the late 80s. He brought what he'd seen move people in the clubs to the airwaves. I
5: came up at a great time. So when I was on the air, there were only three DJs in the entire country that was playing rap music on the air, and I was one of the three. So. I I got to be very popular in Washington, D.C., and especially in in the Baltimore area. But when I was able to get on the radio and be a street DJ at the same time at an early stage, I was probably DJing five nights a week in the clubs and touring on the weekends, going from different cities. And I got really involved in the the black HBCUs. Mm -hmm. And even though people always think I'm a kappa, I'm not. Um, I decided it was best for me to stay neutral so I could DJ everybody's party. And I, that's what I was doing. I, I was, I just DJing everybody's party anywhere. Many people thought that, well, when he goes to the morning show, he's not going to DJ anymore. No, I still kept DJing. And I, right now I'm probably doing at least two parties a week. I try to keep them on the weekends and sometimes Thursday night because I'm older. So it's hard. It's harder to recoup now. You know what I mean? We used to be able to work to two o'clock in the morning and still do a 6 a.m. show. I can't can't do that anymore. But there's been a resurgence in the in the hip hop game of old school music. And Mm -hmm. if anything, D. Nice taught us was that people, especially African-Americans, love good music, uh, especially our old school music. So since that has happened since the pandemic, I've been busier than I've been in a very long time.
4: Let me ask you about the relationship that people have with DJs. You know, to a great degree, there are certain careers and positions that people feel a real connection, right? A bartender, let's say, you know, if you've got a favorite bar, people really get to know that bartender often if they're sitting at that bar. Um, Even strangers have a connection with a bartender. DJs to a great degree are the same way in the city that they're on. I'm talking about on radio now. Give me a sense of what it's been like for you from Baltimore to Atlanta to D.C. to have the relationship with the community.
5: I I will tell you this. I don't think there's another field that gets you closer to the people than actually being a DJ. I provide the soundtrack to people's life. People remember generations of time. They remember the songs. They can listen to a song and remember where they were when they fell in love with that song. Music is the one thing that ties people together to certain places in certain time. You can go to any city in America, go to Detroit. And if I said, "Ed, what was the hot club in Detroit? Mm -hmm. You would tell Mm -hmm. me the club and I bet you could tell me the DJ Mm -hmm. who was at that club. Most of us became adults. You know, when we became 21 and could drink, We went to the club and going to the club was the only place we got to meet a person that we wanted to date of the opposite sex or whatever your persuasion is. The clubs was that place. Right. And it gave us that connection. But I provided the soundtrack. And as an MC, the way I DJ was take people on a musical journey every night and people would come and stand and just watch me play music. Even if they weren't there to meet somebody or dance. They, they, I, my favorite memory is, to, is I was at a club in Atlanta, Kaya, and and it's crazy and it's crowded. And I'm looking across the floor and I see Jerry Rice dancing on the floor, you know, and, and I'm like, wow, that's, that's like Jerry Rice. And Mariah Carey is dancing on the floor and and Jerry Rice is dancing with Debbie Allen. And they they danced from 10 to 1 in the morning and never stopped. And both came off the floor sweating. And I think for me, that's why I love it so much, because I got to provide a soundtrack for people's life. And they will never forget that ever.
4: I had Donnie Simpson on a a couple of weeks ago and and Donnie talked about the idea of his celebrity as a DJ started very young, you know, again, out of Detroit. Donnie was on the air at 15. Yeah. You know, and and not just some little weekend show. I mean, he was full-fledged DJ at My 15. God. And he yeah. talked about the idea of um the celebrity you can get as a DJ yeah. as well and how particularly again local back in the day, you know, you rivaled popularity of anybody who was coming into that town.
5: I will tell you if I wanted to be a politician I could have gotten any political job in any of the city, in Atlanta, in Baltimore. I, I could have done it. It, it was that much popularity. Um, but being a DJ and being in the street, ironically, is a very irresponsible profession. I mean, who, who starts working and drinking <laughs> at midnight and doesn't get home to five in the morning? You know, and everything that comes along with that, all that influence and both the, the negative and the positive um but i could have done that that's the side of it when you get huge names saying i want you to dj my wedding that's a very that's a very personal thing for somebody to say to me for somebody to say fly here and dj my birthday my 50th that's a huge honor that somebody would bestow upon me and that respect and 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 public you know, gratification that I get from it. But what's interesting enough is when I compound, think about this, when I compound being a huge street DJ with being a huge radio DJ and putting them both together, the persona was bigger than I, I you know, people tell me, but I try to stay humble and, and just like, okay, I hear you. Mm-hmm. You know, because I never want it to get to my head, which is so important about giving back and why we do it.
4: When we return, sharing his life with his listeners and his role in the WAP Phenomenon.
0: Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
1: Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty.
4: Like many popular radio DJs, Frank Ski's relationship with his audience is very personal. Listeners often feel a kinship to the people they listen to every day, especially if they feel the person on the other side of the microphone is really giving a part of themselves. There is a sense of giving a bit of oneself personally on the air. Um, There's an authenticity that listeners look for. And, and I think they find it, you know, there are a couple of people that can fool you, <laughs> but but for the most part, you're giving of yourself the uh, uh, not all, but a bit of who you really are. Totally. Um, and and some of the personal stuff that most of us want to keep, you know, hidden behind the door often comes out with the popularity. How have you been able to deal with that kind of thing? Because for every plus there is for being a public figure, there is a downside to it. too. Yeah.
5: You know, I I, I will tell you this. When my children were born, I was in the room on my cell phone, narrating over the air, <laughs> to the point where my sons turned 21 last week. And people will say, "I remember when mm-hmm. you were born. I was there. I was in the room, and I was there." Um, when I went through my divorce, um, I tried to keep it out the newspaper. You know, I was very kind of like, "Oh, this is not good, whatever." And and speaking to my friends, they would. They were like, Negro, you ain't the only person that's ever been divorced. You know, everybody's been through a divorce. Tell your story. And I remember I was going through a divorce. And at the same time, I closed my restaurant and had to file bankruptcy. And I felt so personally defeated. Mm -hmm. I I, I, I felt like I failed for the first time in my life. And, you know, it was my friends that told me bankruptcy is a tool. You have to use it. You created a business. Stop holding on to things so personally and move forward and do something else. And I remember when it was about to hit the newspaper, uh, Rodney Ho, who wrote for the AJC, called me and he said, I'm going to publish the story. I just wanted to let you know. And I called him back and I said, Can you publish the story at 9 a.m.? Let me get on the air and tell people it's coming. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for me. And he said, Okay. And I got on the air. And I told my truth. So many men came up to me, Ed, and told me, You saved my life. I was about to commit suicide because I couldn't deal with all of this losing everything, mm-hmm. losing my business, losing my family, losing, you know, and you really helped me through that. It was a very transparent time. And I think it just made me closer to people to the point where people are okay now to tell me. You know, this is what happened when my mentor that I talked about when he died, um, I wrote him a letter and he wrote me a letter um, on his final days. And I read those letters on the air and it was really a tear jerking moment for me where I was crying on the air. But I think it showed people that it is okay to have hurt and loss and lose people, lose business, lose everything, you know, that we are resilient and that God is always there, and there's always joy in the morning if we just stick to it. And and that's what I think I've been able to do.
4: So if you look at where you are now, there is joy in the morning in that not only have you been able to come back, but you are, um, you know, a lot of people would think this of Tom Joyner when he was in two markets at one time. You um, are, are following that roadmap in that you are in two major markets on the air. Um, at one time, you
5: know, I, a while back about seven years ago, I walked away from a very lucrative situation to be syndicated and I didn't have my business together and it wound up costing me a year being off the air. And this time I talked to God and I say, God, I'm not praying for that. I'm praying for whatever you want for me mm-hmm. and I'm going to work hard and whatever you want, you make happen. And since I stopped trying to steer my career, Ed, and let God control my career, the floodgates have started to open. And all I say is just prepare me for the job that you're asking me to do. Make sure I'm prepared. And I say that prayer every morning. Make sure I uplift you and make sure I'm giving people information and entertainment and you know
4: inspiration that they need. Ski is giving his audience what they need five days a week on The Frank Ski Show, in the mornings in Atlanta, and during the afternoon in D.C. Both cities are hotbeds for Black America, especially Atlanta. That is the current mecca for Black culture. I was on with uh, Isaac Hayes Jr. the other day, and we talked about Atlanta and what Atlanta is right now. You know, I, I said to him, I grew up in Detroit in the 60s. So M- Motown was big when I was very little at its height, at its pinnacle. Um you know, we had black mayors long before many others the city council was black, black people were thriving here. Atlanta is that now. Um what's it like to be in that city uh and be a part of um, molding it?
5: It's been incredible. Um it it It's still a city that has a little bit of disrespect thrown our way, where where we sell most of the records in the urban community. They come out of Atlanta, but the record companies don't want to set up shop in Atlanta. They're still in New York and LA and whatnot. Um, We're the biggest hub for movies outside of LA. Um, We Billions and billions of dollars in the movie industry. Every athlete that's Black Probably has a home here. Every actor and actress spends time here. Every musical person is here. It's like New York was back in the day. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. But the infrastructure is still being built to support that. And that's probably one of the negative sides of it. But truly, this is a city, Ed, that I'll tell you the truth. I can go in any other city. I go to New York tomorrow. Today, I go to New York tomorrow to be the middle of the week, right? And I go to New York and there's nothing happening. And things start to happen on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Atlanta has a big event seven nights a week. If you got the energy, baby, there is something <laughs> happening in Atlanta seven nights a week.
4: A couple of other things before we let you go, Frank. One of them is um, the idea, I've always said this of, of uh, Barry Gordy. The idea of knowing um, what artists, go through because you're an artist, I think helps you. You know, when I juxtapose Barry Gordy and his creation of Motown, he wrote songs. He fancied himself in the beginning as an artist. um, And he understood what it took. Yeah. Even when he was controlling the money, he still had a bottom baseline of understanding that Bob Johnson, when he created BET did not have. And so I think about you as a DJ Um, And and someone who was also an artist. Yeah. Um, And I think that gives you another sensibility. What was that like um, understanding the dynamic of creation of art as well as obviously pushing it?
5: I had to be a person that went the route of a lot of other people where a lot of my well, most of all my early money was stolen, um, you know, by the industry. But one thing that I did was always remember through my mentor to keep my publishing and my writers so that I could have a song like Whores in the House, which was a big club record up north and, you know, the Midwest. um, Have that be sampled by an artist like Cardi B and what that means now. Um, But, you know, it's it's interesting because as a radio DJ, see, I got to cheat. So let me let me explain what I said. I got to cheat. I got to make beats and then take them to the club and test them out first. Mm. And I got to get to clubs and I got to play my stuff. And I could walk around and hear it through the speakers, which is a difference than hearing it in the studio. And then I got to go back and forth and tweak it to get it right. So when Doodoo Brown came out, it was right, baby. It was mm. it was hitting. When the Wobble came out, it was hitting because I got to test those records. Um so I had an unfair advantage but I'm also a person and, and it's funny how God works I never I never could read music because I wasn't great at math but I hear it right I can hear it and I can produce people and Hezekiah Walker and and, and gospel I produce all this music cuz I can hear it and now I have a son who's a music prodigy right so finally him and I can work on stuff together and I can tell him what I want and I got somebody mm-hmm. in the family that can do it so being in the music industry for me has been um, very, it's, it's been a very good thing. It, it really has being able to create those songs that transcend generations is wonderful.
4: And, and what was it like for you uh, last year to have WAP hit like it did? I mean, there was controversy surrounding it and there's question of, you know, what it means and whether yep. we should salute it, but let's just get to the baseline of an, an art form and, the, the sheer magnitude of having that kind of record, that kind of cultural touch tone, um, yeah. most artists don't, don't see, don't touch. What was that like for you?
5: Well, I mean, to get the call almost 30 years later, um, and I have, I've had artists throughout the years sample my music. But when I got that call, I knew it was going to be something special. And the producers, the younger generation producers, they hear our music differently. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. so sometimes we get so attached to it. We try to change and we really can't where they hear our music totally differently. And um, it just became the backbone of that song. What it was like was God telling me and keeping a promise. And when God said to me and he says to people, everything they stole from you, we're going to pay you back tenfold. So everything that those record companies stole from me, in the early nineties, God was giving it back to me now. And that's truly what it felt like.
4: Wow. Finally, Frank, let me ask you about, uh, do some prognostication for me, if you will, the future of radio, you know, we radio as we knew it that you and I grew up with is completely different. It's a conglomerate run um, industry now. You know, the great thing about radio when you and I grew up is the the individuality of the DJ. Yeah. Right? They got to to make their own playlists. They broke songs. They they knew what was hot in their markets. Mm-hmm. Um it's completely different now. Um give me a sense of how how you see um the future of of radio and what you what direction you'd like to see it go.
5: You know, I I will tell you this. Um my kids who, like I said earlier, just turned 21. Um, my kids haven't listened to the radio yeah. in six or seven years. And, you know, so they, they're Spotify, they're everywhere else. But interesting enough, they still look for personality. And what people listen to radio for is still personality. Um, we did a big research study at our radio station um, about what people really want from the show. And, you know, the interesting thing they want from the show news that affects them and the community. Spotify, they mm-hmm. can't do that. Like the other places can't do that. And I think that as long as we can use radio to do the information that can change their life, inspiration was number two. The entertainment side, like talking dirt about people was probably one of the, the last things. You know, but people really want a way That can help change their life. I got got, um, pulled up by someone who basically told me that many years ago, 15 years ago, um, their mom dragged them as a kid to a week-long thing that I did on the radio called Real Estate Week, where I was going to teach people how to buy a house, right? And every night, there was a different workshop. And this girl's mother dragged her every night to the workshop. And she said she did not like me for years because of that. But after the workshop, her mom actually bought their first home. And she says what what I get the happiest about is watching my mom decorate our family home at Christmas and invite all of my family to mm-hmm. our house that you helped my mom buy. Wow, That's what radio is.
4: There it is, man. And you have been giving that inspiration for decades now. And, uh, you know, proud to say that uh, you, you keep doing it and keep inspiring and, and, and keep people moving forward in a time where we really need that. So I appreciate you giving me a little bit of time today, Frank. Thank always you, good to talk to you, man.
5: Always good to talk to you more.
4: 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media.